32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrew. Why is that funny? I don't know. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland, beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. Um, This week podcast runs entirely. That's in the wrong place. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> this podcast runs entirely on the fuel generated from Patreon. Instead of petrol, put some energy that translates into cold hard cash into our tank over at patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. We can't do this without you. Uh, there's plenty of United Ireland related archival content uh, with regards to some of the things we'll be discussing today. Um, and you can go back and listen to, for example, our podcast on REITs, which we uh, recently tweeted to go back to. You can listen to um, Dermot Keyes talk about REITs and also our 32 questions. Sean okay, Keyes. Huh? Sean Keyes. Sean Keyes. Sorry, Sean Keyes. Um, and also our 32 questions with Kate O'Connell, in which we touch on the prickly issue of her membership of Fine, Fine Gael. Uh, you can go back and listen to that too. We're going to be talking about those bits in a bit. But this week, we're discussing a boiling point in the housing crisis in Ireland. I'm sure you've all noticed uh, social media essentially turning into some kind of millennial version of Les Miserables uh, with people ready to man the barricades uh, and have been pushed that little bit too far. Um with regards to a confluence of things. So we're going to be joined by Keena Callahan from the Sock Dems to discuss uh, what is going on with investment funds buying up housing estates with Dara O'Brien's bill and with the general neoliberal hellscape that has brought us to this point where people are being gazumped by global capital. Uh, but first... You make it sound so dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> what a dream. What a dream. But first, it's the state of the nation. Andrea, there's an issue with the cost of cans. Well, actually, no, Una. Incorrect. There is no issue. Well, there is. They are a bit expensive. However, uh, Fine Gael have decided to bring in uh, minimum unit pricing on alcohol, which is apparently to save the well-being of the nation. However, anyone who has thought about this for one second would realize that actually making booze more expensive doesn't stop people who need it from drinking it. It just means they don't, like, let's say it's an addict in a family. They feed their family less because they need to feed their addiction more. Um, so there, uh, this came out the other day. The record's like, oh, we're going to, this is going to be brilliant. Everyone literally underneath, no, won't. I'm an, uh, I know an alcoholic, blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's just a very bizarre uh, nanny state approach to like, we'll just make it more expensive and then people won't buy it. Fail. Um, that does not work. So I would be, I'm just so interested to see like the reaction has been so negative to it. Like, and it is only in supermarkets. So it's only on cheap booze that it's going. So it doesn't actually affect the voter base of Finnegal. Yeah, I think as well with really complex issues like Ireland's misuse of alcohol collectively. Uh, we have very high consumption. We have massive issues with regards to alcohol-related disease and injury and violence. 
that when you're trying to address something that's so deeply rooted, you do need a, well, ugh, I hate saying joined up thinking, but like I also hate saying multifaceted approach, but you do need loads of levers being pulled simultaneously that address all of the very complex aspects of it. And doing one policy thing um, won't change that around uh, pricing. 100%. And I think there wouldn't be such an issue if the uh, if the profits from the pricing were going to be injected into supporting um, our addiction services or um, and using that for that. But it's not. It just literally get, turns into profits. Yeah. And beyond that kind of digging into the reasons why people binge drink or become addicted to alcohol or reliant or have problematic drinking what are the underlying stresses um, and instigating factors to that? That's a much harder thing to address than changing the price on something. Um, it also kind of makes me think about, you know, when you go on holidays to different countries in Europe or elsewhere that have really cheap alcohol, you know, a lot of these countries don't have the same issues that Ireland does with alcohol. So it's easy to change the prices and harder to change the culture. Um and yeah, I guess people who want to buy 20 bottles of Heineken for 20 quid or something. I mean, this goes back to the grocery order from years ago when supermarkets were allowed actually kind of cut the price of alcohol um, or do below cost sales of different things. So that's, you know, a, a policy that was actually brought in that led to this. Uh, and now there has to be another policy brought in to combat it, which is very similar to what's happening in housing, which we'll be talking about in a bit. Other things that have happened... Um, Let's talk about Kate O'Connell, who uh, did an interview with Claire Byrne on Friday morning. There was a lot of uh, chatter about who would be Fine Gael's candidate in the upcoming Dublin Bay South by-election, which I think is going to be a really, really important election. I think it's like a litmus test for the next general election. I think if Fine Gael, uh lose the seat in Dublin Bay South, which you think, well, you know, that could be kind of unheard of because they have a lot of votes there. And it is the wealthiest wealthiest constituency in the country. In order to win, you know, a seat in a by election, it, it can be kind of different to other general elections because it is winner take takes it all. You know, there's one seat for the most part, certainly in this uh, circumstance. And you kind of need profile, and you need a party machine, and you need a massive get out the vote kind of drive. In th- well, not in theory. I mean, I think if you're looking at the the lay of the land in that constituency with regards to profile, Kate O'Connell would fit the bill for Fine Gael. She yeah. is their highest profile candidate who is not elected um, in that constituency. And she went on Claire Byrne to say that she wouldn't be going for selection and was very, very critical of behaviour um, towards her within the party. Um there's no, like, it's no secret that there isn't, the, um, you know, love lost uh, between her and party leadership, you know, Leah Varadkar, obviously, um, and Owen Murphy, who was very close to Leah Varadkar. Um, when the last election, 2020, there was that remark made by one of Owen Murphy's team that, like, you know, Kate O'Connell talks too much and stuff. It's very obvious to see these things through a gendered lens. Um in the interview, Kate O'Connell said that there was a movement towards the replacement of her with somebody else and it's very hard to combat that and that she, there was a push back against her and to replace her. She also detailed some kind of instances of really like weird behaviour within the party. She talked about one Fine Gael meeting where when one, her team arrived before her or something and 
somebody had gone to the effort of getting a sod of turf, putting it in um, this person's handbag, who was female, and that this person was going to present it to Kate O'Connell in front of people at that meeting. And Kate O'Connell said, that mightn't seem serious, but that's designed to diminish. You're not from here. You're from the country. We don't like the cut of your jib, as it were. She also said that it was spoken about and there was witnesses to it about erecting a sign outside her pharmacy, pointing to the M50, saying Westmead this way, which she characterised as hugely disrespectful. And while there may not be one massive argy-bargy that people can point to, and of course, Kate O'Connell was um, supportive of Simon Coveney in the leadership contest in Fine Gael. She labelled, uh, you know, a cohort of people in the party as choir boys. Um, and, you know, obviously that's the kind of argy-bargy of, of uh, inter-party politics and manoeuvring you know, when you put these, as she says, when you put these incidents together, like individually, they may not seem to be, you know, a major thing, but like collectively, you know, it grinds you down. It's it's very difficult. And so she has basically figured that she's not going to go for, um, towards selection because uh, basically the numbers wouldn't be there to support her. So Fine Gael are left with the most likely candidate now, who's councillor called James Gagan. Um, you'd have to think that they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot there. It's likely that he may be the only man on, on the kind of main parties running for election. Uh, obviously an issue considering the chatter around um, O'Connell versus Murphy in the past. And she probably had the biggest shot at winning because, you know, we've obviously interviewed her a couple of times, I think, Um She's one of those Fine Gael TDs uh, who is kind of curious because I do think that she actually commands um, uh, a degree of support amongst people who don't support Fine Gael. I love her. <laughs> For example, Exhibit A. Um, so that's kind of something that's quite unique. Uh, she obviously has a much higher profile than this uh, James Gagan guy. And... The, yeah, I think it's coming out about him as well now. Not juice, but like that he, like he's one of the main people who set up Renewa, and it's like he's been in Finnegal for seventeen years. But it's like he's one of the signees who can sign off in the double base out of Renewa. Mm. There was a bunch of people from different parties, kind of semi involved in that. I think Lisa Chambers was involved in it as well. Beautiful. Um, maybe I think. Apologies if I'm wrong on that. Uh, but yeah, so that leaves Fine Gael in a tricky, tricky sitch because will they retain the seat? It would be crazy if they didn't. But now it's looking like quite a juicy contest it's shaping up to be. In the Greens, you're going to have Claire Byrne and Hazel Chu um, contesting selection there. Can Bach, only two of them? Can only one? Per, uh, only per- one, yeah. The party has to select one candidate to run. Oh, God. And then you have Ivana Bacic, Bacic, who's uh, confirmed as a Labour nominee. She was the only person, I think, who um, put herself forward for that. Sinn Féin's candidate, TBC. A lot of people are talking about Lynn Boylan, Sockdam's TBC as well. So, you know, if there's high profile people in there, for example, Bacic, Boylan, maybe Hazel Chu, that's another story with what the Greens are going to do there um, and what that may spell for her future. Uh, that's going to be hard for a another f- 
Finnegal dude uh, to contest. And at that point, when you lose profile, you have to then um, get the other two really right, which is the kind of party grassroots machinery and getting out the vote. So you kind of want all three, right? Um, and what about Fianna Fáil? What are they up to? I don't know who they're running. I would imagine if they are running someone, they would probably choose a female candidate as well. Um, Jim O'Callaghan is in there. But I, I he's like, there's such a. He's been made uh, head of elections first. Yeah. And there's, there is a massive Green vote there. Like, I know things have changed since the last election because of the Greens' performance in government and how dissatisfied people are with them in certain areas. I would imagine, given the demographics and profile of this constituency, that people who vote for the Greens will be less dissatisfied with their government performance than in other constituencies because of wealth, basically. Um, but when you look at what, I mean, Eamon Ryan got something like two and a half thousand or more votes more than the next candidate um, So who, who got elected. So there is a massive green vote there. Whether a Green Party candidate could capitalise on that, I suppose the thing about the Sok, a Sok Dem or indeed Ivana, Bacic um, and a Green is that they're much more transfer friendly than a Sinn Féin candidate or Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. So that may split their vote somewhat, um, but the transfers will kind of more likely go to Labour Sock Dems, Greens, um, rather than, um, you know, Sinn Féin candidates. Sinn Féin voters don't transfer to Fianna Fáil, or they transfer a little bit to Fianna Fáil, but not to Fianna Gael. So, yeah, juicy, juicy. Juice fest. Um, well done to Kate O'Connell for just standing up for herself, though. And uh, I listened back to the interview and, and, you know, she was, as she always is, you know, very direct uh, and just laying out what occurred to her on a personal, professional level. Um, I'm not a, the biggest fan of Fine Gael in the world, <laughs> but I do have respect for Kate O'Connell um, for sticking by her principles and for her work on repeal. I do as well but I just can't understand when you're in such a hostile environment like I know you can't just give up what you believe in but like is the party the party for you anymore well I think it's it's her whole thing is that Fine Gael should be a broad church and there's you know she doesn't necessarily she's not very into the more right-wing aspect of the party and Fine Gael are probably also going to be at a crossroads if they lose this seat because they'll probably have to make uh, decision to, you know, figure out who they are. And I think there probably is a worry in some ways that they may move further right. Obviously, that's a populist reactionary thing to do. It would damage them in the long term, but they may think that that's a place that they can shore up votes. I think it would be a disaster strategically, but I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. Do you know what I mean? But like, they know who they are in it. They're scone makers and <laughs> garden chip givers. Um, yeah, Fine Gael, the party of sea s- dry robes. And um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, now, another, um, not another, but a bizarre, bizarre uh, situation um, unfolded with regards to Owen Harris, a uh, longtime columnist of the Sunday Independent, being outed as one of the people behind uh, a Twitter account. Um, and this Twitter account was 
trolling people basically like super duper anti Sinn Féin um, really awful remarks aimed at Eva Grace Moore uh, from the Examiner and other people and now there have been I think nine other accounts associated with this account suspended by Twitter um, so there's just like so many things going on here right there's like the bizarreness that somebody like in their late 70s would participate in a anonymous quote-unquote account like lashing out loads of insults against people um i recognize the avatar or the the picture of the the profile picture avatar of um the twitter account straight away because you know you just kind of notice people who are being dicks to you on twitter and also some of the other accounts as well that are being kind of cited i'm like oh yeah that's always that weird account uh, making really snide remarks. Um, so first of all, that you would do that, like it's so pathetic that people would set up an anonymous account and a group of people, like what? Like did they, even the logistics of it. Um, even and, one account on Twitter is stressful. Yeah, exactly. And then just the um, the 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 terrible um, kind of abuse that Eve Grace Moore was outlining. Um. And obviously, the the Sindo have terminated Owen Harris's contract. I like, as you know, Andre. I'm not really on Twitter at the moment. Um, I've pulled back from it in the last few years and kind of repeatedly go off it for weeks or months at a time, totally. Um, apart from like just bland retweeting, and you know the reason for that is okay. Twitter is trash. It's a drain on energy. Uh, it's just stupid ultimately. Um, but of course, a huge part of that is the abuse and snideness that you have to deal with, um, particularly as a woman journalist. Um, the the atmosphere and the bullshit is constant. And I think that people in media sometimes frame this stuff as like, you know, just, oh, it's just like anonymous trolls or whatever. And that is part of it. Um, Of course, you know, the irony being with with the Harris thing is that like Harris and people like him are the first people to like give out about like, oh, these people just like sitting in their basements, you know, keyboard warriors or like shinner bots and things like that. And then, you know, these people are actually the people who are doing, doing this stuff. So there's that ridiculousness of it. Um, but I think I find it very upsetting actually, to be totally honest, uh, with regards to the stuff that Aoife was experiencing, because I just relate, I relate to it, you know, and it's, and it's also, you know, the abuse that Alan Coyne has had to deal with, um, the abuse that any kind of young female journalists have to deal with myself included. Uh, it's so tiring and, it's just kind of upsetting to spend your career trying to call this stuff out and then something really weird and bizarre like this happens and you just wonder where is the will to tackle to tackle misogyny within the industry like from other men within the industry and then to tackle the abuse the gendered abuse that women have to deal with all journalists well loads of journalists get abused on twitter but female journalists get gendered abuse. Male journalists do really, really rarely get gendered abuse. But the majority of abuse that I get or snideness or whatever like that, I know, because it's my experience, I know that so much of that is sexist and misogynistic. 
And it's really difficult. I don't mind people criticizing me on the terms of my work. But when you spend your career having to deal with that and then something like this blows up, it's just like, oh, it's so tiring. So that's what I think about that. Now, the public... Would you consider moving into the nail game? <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of talking about this in this way because I'm kind of emotional about it today. But I think if people just put themselves in your shoes and consider getting that kind of abuse... Look, you know, there's the abuse of that women journalists have to deal with globally is very, very well documented. You know, I mean, it's very well documented. The shit that women journalists have to deal with on social media, in the comments, blah, blah, blah. Um, more nefarious again, I think, is the abuse within the industry. Um, and, and that's what gets me down. It's not surprising to me that the likes of Ethan Moore and Ellen Coyne deal with a lot of abuse maybe more so than like just a female reporter because they are really strong, really bright, really smart young women with opinions. And it's, and it's not like throwing out your opinions everywhere. It's our fucking job. It's our job to write columns. Like, and uh, yeah, I just want, I remember Maeve Higgins saying once about um, way back when about stand up and, and how, you know, so many women comics had to like, uh, you know, talk about feminism and address gender issues in comedy, like on the stage. And she was just like, I just want to be able to like tell my jokes. You know, I don't want to be talking about this stuff. I really don't want to be talking about it. But as long, this is the, this is the experience. Um, and some days I don't give a shit about it. And today is a day where I just feel tired about it all. That's enough out of me. Um, the public mood was summed up by a Twitter user uh, called Darcy Faccio at Paramite Pies, who redid the train spotting Choose Life posters with a little riff on how a lot of people are feeling about Ireland right now. If you haven't seen it, uh, we think it kind of sums up the general, or as you were sending me a voice note during the week, Andre, there's revolution in the air. I can feel it. But I think it's like the straw that breaks the camelback vibe so no it's a revolution there's an energy shift and we're if the time is now if you haven't seen this poster we asked our friend of the pod mango to bring it to life choose never owning your own home choose 1200 euro bed sits choose co-living choose 12 square meter rooms and shared in the kitchen with 30 people choose landlords choose paying someone else's mortgage choose living in a shed down the back of your parents garden Choose zero hour contracts. Choose crap wages. Choose being priced out of education. Choose dog queues. Choose hotels. Choose student accommodation. Choose no creative spaces, no nightclubs, and no venues. Choose a 60 hour work week. Choose no pay for student nurses. Choose unpaid internships. Choose gentrification. Choose Wellburger. Choose being priced out of the area you grew up in. Choose 10,000 plus homeless. Choose food banks. Choose direct provision. Choose living in a tent. Choose dying on the street and becoming another fucking statistic. Choose Simon Harris's TikToks. Choose neoliberal politics. Choose stolen vaccines for the boys, golf dinners and photo ops. Choose never getting laid because you still live at home in your 30s. 
Choose the demolition of protected sites. Choose no mental health funding. Choose waiting six months to see a psychiatrist. Choose the cervical cancer scandal. Choose no restitution for mother and baby home survivors. Choose the world's most expensive children's hospital. Choose no loitering. Choose no bins. Choose trampolines. Choose minimum unit alcohol poison. Choose a vintners association. Choose Leo the Leak. Choose backhanders and brown envelopes. Choose high interest mortgage rates. Choose the Davy Six. Choose Amazon, Apple and Facebook. Choose fuck all corporation tax. Choose the PRTB. Choose evictions. Choose derelict sites. Choose vulture funds. Choose depression. Choose alienation. Isolation. Choose losing all your mates to emigration. Choose no future. Choose Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. crisis isn't new and the public anger in relation to it is often tidal. The rage goes in and out, it ebbs and flows and then certain storms brew to slosh the rage around again. In the last week or so there has been a confluence of events that has created a sort of boiling point. Owen Murphy's uh, very self-satisfied departure from politics. Dara O'Brien's housing housing bill, which loads of people and entities such as ESRI are saying will actually drive up house prices and investment funds buying up estates, particularly one in Kildare, and the nonsense of affordable housing in Dublin costing half a mil. So terrified by the political ramifications of making it harder for young families in Kildare to buy a gaff in an estate, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are now scrambling. Um, as always, it kind of seems like reaction or fear of consequences uh, as opposed to designing good policy. REITs um, and, and kind of large investment funds have been kind of running riot for years, really, Uh in part a consequence um, of Michael Noonan's um, policies uh, in the midst of the recession, kind of inviting um, uh, these funds into into the country uh, to create or to kickstart building basically and to, and to make sure that things were kind of bought up. Um, and then there's the financial and housing policies that were pursued by um, Fine Gael, after, uh, well, while Coveney was minister and Owen Murphy as well. Um, but what's happening in Dublin, for what has been happening in Dublin for years, is now moving out to the commuter belts and beyond, where large investment funds operating as landlords buy entire estates, blocks of apartments, and then rent them back to people who can't afford to buy their own homes because they're competing with entities that have billions and hundreds of millions at their disposal. Will this be the straw that breaks the camel's back now? To discuss this, we're joined by one of the central voices in this issue over the past while, Keno Callaghan. He's a Social Democrat uh, at TD for Dublin Bay North, and he is the housing spokesperson for the SOC Dems. Hi, Keen. Hi, how are you? Nice to meet you both. You've had a busy week. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, and, and this, you know, as you were saying in your introduction there, this issue has kind of, you know, exploded into the media mainstream, if you like, this week. But as you said, it's been going on for, for years. And I think one of the really kind of worrying things about the political response on it is, you know, from, from government and Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, it's kind of been, look, this can't happen in suburban housing states, but it's totally fine to happen in cities and with apartments and all that. We don't have an issue with that. But, you know, the traditional stereotypical kind of family home in a suburban housing state, they're off limits, but everything else is, is very much on limits. 
And I mean, that creates a, you know, huge, and it has created a huge problem. And people, you know, we need balance in terms of, in terms of housing, in terms of different types, sizes, tenures, mix. Of course, we need some, some housing that's, you know, available for people to rent. It also needs to be housing available for, for people who want to purchase. And it's also important in terms of, I suppose, the rental model that's not, it's not just driven entirely by these investment funds trying to get their, you know, maximize returns. But we like it's it's absolutely legitimate that you know you know an individual who might want to buy an apartment should be able to do that or a smaller uh, family household uh, or indeed if people want to you know in a later stage in life if they've if they want to move out of a you know traditional house with three or four bedrooms into an apartment they should be able to have the option to purchase all those sorts of sorts of things and that's all been completely squeezed out the, the last number of years. Mm. Uh, you know, and it's Construction Industry Federation said in, in 2009, 2019, sorry, 95% of apartments were going to institutions. Yeah. Leaving just 5% for everyone else. So this isn't something new. It has been happening for years, as you said. It, it's not new, but it has kicked off. Andrea? Yeah, like, it, it feels like people have been screaming and shouting about this for years at the top of their lungs. There's been articles and investigations for ages. Um, uh, obviously the Sunday business post uh, piece stirred the pot, but why do you think it's finally come into the limelight and that people are so up in arms and that it's caught on? It's kind of sparked finally. I, I actually think that, I think that's the same as with most, most issues when they finally really break. It's that, over time, more and more people are realizing what's going on. And then you hit a critical mass where there's enough people kind of clued into it that they're then able to, you know, amplify this in, in social media and, and, and that. So the my like my take in terms of like what's been going on with housing is that there's now a large amount of people in the country that really can see exactly what's been happening, that's been policies that have been... I mean, this was very much uh, lobbied for by, you know, developers and investment funds and the usual promises if you give us these tax breaks we'll build more there'll be more affordable homes coming on stream for people more within reach and and then lo and behold the promises they make don't actually materialize and it's, it's something quite different and this is the you know when you see the kind of government scratching their head kind of going what's going on you're like but how many times are you going to fall for the same the same lines you know you, you fell for this when you were promised for co-living that there's going to be more affordable uh, living spaces for people instead what, what we get is a whole load of uh, you know 21st century bedsits that are kind of like on a space of a, you know, not, not bigger than a car parking space. We, you know, they fell for it when they were promised by lowering apartment uh, building standards that they were going to get more affordable apartments. Instead, we're seeing some of the most expensive uh, apartment uh, builds uh, in, in, in Europe uh, taking place. So like this, this repeated pattern um, of, of them being lobbied, promised things, and then it, the reality turning out very, very differently and and I think people are, are are generally quite awake to that now, or know about that, or, or you know, and I think that kind of critical mass publicly understands this now. So I, I, in a sense, I think what's happening maybe in, in in politics and in the media, it's you know, it's just following following that as it is with with, with a lot of issues when, when they finally kind of break. Mm. I find it very frustrating though that we're living in a world where there has to be mass outrage for something to be brought to light or something to change or something to happen. Why are we in this cycle of waiting for mass outrage to happen before we can start looking and getting digging into things? Yeah, no, 100%. It's incredibly frustrating. And it's, it's incredibly frustrating when people are following these things for years and trying to make noise about it for, for years. I, I mean, often 
like often that is how change happens. So, I mean, we'd all love to live in a country where, remember uh, knocking on the door in the last election and someone said to me, like, you know, they said, look, I'd love to never have to think about politics. We just elect you, you lot, and you go off and sort it all out. And, and I shouldn't have to think about it between elections at all. And I was, I was like, that, it's a lovely idea, you know, but that, that's not how, you know, things only happen because people get engaged and people make noise. And it, like, it, it has a lot of ways always been that way. And especially when you're up against, you know, strong lobby groups. I mean, there's an awful lot of money to be made in this for people in the property industry. Like we're talking millions and billions of euro here and they've got full-time lobby, lobbyists. They have influence. They're, they're, you know, the whole time trying to get their ideas through the political system. And so it is difficult for, you know, for the wider public who don't have, you know, what we have is our own our own voice and our own voice in social media and our own ability to vote in elections or whatever it is. But but we don't have those sorts of resources. So yeah, I mean, it is it is frustrating for people being up against that. I, look, I, look, I think it's particularly bad the relationship between some some people in politics uh, and the development industry and, and housing in Ireland is, has been far too close for far too long. And and hopefully we're at a point where that's going to start getting getting properly broken but you look at housing policy it is pretty much written by developers yeah and, yeah can i do we'll get to the policy itself in a second but just when you're talking there about obviously we know that the the lobbying is very strong we know there's loads of money to be made one of the things that i just can't understand is with regards to politicians who are in charge of policy and indeed you know people in the department of housing and stuff like that cannot foresee uh, the consequences of something that's initially sold as a positive. They cannot, or something that can be a catalyst for development or construction. They cannot seem to see what happens after that, right? So you're talking about, you know, and I know Murphy was kind of spinning this line on, on Claire Byrne the other week, like, well, you know, co-living was never meant to be more than just this small thing. And it's like, okay, is it that people who are in charge of this are stupid, basically, um, which is a very blunt and and rude kind of way to frame it and and a dangerous um, kind of uh, disposition to have if you're in charge of this stuff, that they cannot actually see what everybody from like columnists to randomer on, on Twitter is saying is going to happen when you implement this policy? Or is that actually getting them off the hook? Because, you know, I just feel like if Fine Gael, for example, were going to fix the housing crisis, they would have fixed the housing crisis. You know, it's kind of like that Sorkin line in social network. If you'd invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. And is it that it's like, oh no, we were just so caught off guard by the unintended consequences of this policy that everybody else was talking about was going to happen? Or is it by design? Because it just feels like if you wanted to have a developer-centric housing policy, you would design that and that's what we have, is the, is the kind of, well, this has just happened because everything's a shambles and politics is just like, you know, scrambling one foot in front of the other. And now here we are. Where do you, yeah. where, where do you fall on that? So that, I mean, that, that like, I, I don't have a full answer on that. And that's actually what I, the whole time I'm kind of asking myself, it's like, how is this, is this happening where, you know, is it just, like you see ministers, for example, come into the doll, not necessarily all of them, but good range of them and older politicians, and they'll come in with these scripts written by someone else, and you can tell they 
they've had no input into it. They don't know even the words that they're really reading out. You can tell that they're not necessarily on top of their briefs. And, and to be clear, that's not everyone. But you, you see it with you see it with some people. So you can see sometimes a lack of it, you know, a lack of interest there that they're just putting their name on the speech and they're just fronting it up, but they're not necessarily very in, involved in it. So you, you can have that as part of the problem. I mean, part of it is is it, it, I think is kind of ideological biases, or it is that you know there's certainly some people that and you can definitely see it in sections of politics still have a kind of a, a deference to developers. And it, this kind of idea of, well, they build houses or whatever, so they must know what they're they're talking about. And of course, like, of course, you would listen in terms of housing. You would listen to everyone, and you would, you know, you don't dismiss any, outright everything that any developer says or any builder. Of course, they have a, a legitimate viewpoint, but they just kind of dominant say almost in terms of housing policy so i think part of it is a, is a kind of a deference i think part of it is a yeah it is this kind of just absolute kind of ideological belief in sure if you make things as easy as possible for the private sector private sector will deliver job done and i mean that, that has been the policy in terms of the investment funds and the REITs it basically is make things as easy and generous as possible but it's but it's i mean it is incredibly hard to understand how they don't see the the consequences of that and where it will go, um, and you know they don't seem to see yeah whatever about there's a case for when everything was stalled you could possibly make the case that you try and you try and you know activate it or something from some of these measures but to just let that go on and you see this is this is just history repeating itself quite and quite recently I mean our last crash a lot of that was driven by these uh, section twenty three tax reliefs. Uh, that were going on pre-Celtic Tiger uh, crash. And they, originally they were targeted at, at small areas of the inner city that needed some rejuvenation. And then they were extended all over the country. So you had all this, you know, it was attracting investment money in and, and some of these schemes completely collapsed and, and, you know, led to these kind of oversupply in, in, in all sorts of areas. So like it's it's just a different model of what's failed before. And, and what we saw with the, you know, Celtic Tiger collapses, we saw this huge pressure coming on from kind of buy-to-let investors squeezing out, you know, first-time buyers. And that's been sorted now in terms of the buy-to-let investors, but just being replaced by the funds. So, look, it's 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 very frustrating. I mean, I'd say, in, in all honesty, like my take on it is it's probably a mix of these different things. It's a mix of ideology, a mix of sometimes a lack of, uh, you know, independent uh, analysis or, or thought themselves. It is it can be a mix of naivety with a mix of bias towards, thinking that developers are are a legitimate you know have a have a very a much more legitimate or valid voice than others in this i i mean i can't understand like at, at the moment for example the, the shared equity scheme that the the government is is pushing and you know the half a million price limits for an a so-called affordable apartment in dublin esri central bank housing agency basically every independent commentator left right center and different are all saying this is an awful idea it's not going to work it's going to inflate house prices uh the only people who've, who've looked for it is the, the developers and then we know exactly from the uk where this is borrowed what it does is it inflates house prices so th- they're walking themselves straight into another housing this is, o- is only going to end in tears for them um and they're walking straight into it again uh, making the same sorts of mistakes, listening to the same people who've made all these promises over the last number of years in, in terms of affordable housing that you know don't materialise once the developer lobbyists get what they want. So, it, like, it is hard to understand why, why it keeps keeps happening. But I, maybe opt- optimistically, maybe we are at a point where that is is there's enough of an emphasis on this now that that's going to shift and break. I mean, it's 
it's certainly, you know, to see them during the week in the doll and stuff, they were hugely under pressure on this. They they know that they've it's been pushed far too far. People are very angry about it. So it, it's it's how far that now that push for for a change in direction goes. I suppose is is, is really the question. There is definitely a, a you know there's definitely a strong feeling there. Um, so it's how, it's how far it goes. Yeah. You mentioned a good few times there ideology and obviously the developer led ideology is an ideology in itself and but it's been kind of there's been a table tennis throwing of ideology as a slag uh what do you think about that like how like is it like silly that people are throwing this word around as if they don't have an ideology themselves yeah i mean ideology means ideas you know values so you know everyone has ideas and values so yeah i mean it's look these words are 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 used sometimes just to dismiss other people in politics and i think like that's just it's a deflection kind of tactic you know and, and to try and paint you know as you know as if the government's policies on housing are somehow practical and everyone else's are ideological you know i think is look it's total nonsense and it, it's just a kind of decoy and you're right i mean it's it's we should be focusing on, on actually what needs to be done to, to change this. Yeah. Sometimes I genuinely think that <clears throat> um, Leo Varadkar or Dara Bryan or people like that may actually think that ideological means idealistic. <laughs> you know, like I'm like, do, do, do you actually know the meaning of the word? But listen, what damage are investment funds and REITs doing, do you think? Uh, it's it's massive damage and it's on it's on lot, lots of different scales so i mean the over the last you know week what really came to the fore is you know that they're pushing out kind of you know first time buyers that people had saved up deposits you know in, in minute and that but they're they're doing I, I think they're doing a lot of damage in terms of building building communities because it's their whole model is that these are you know kind of units on a balance sheet and it's all about return and it's not about community and it is about you know, we, we've seen very good analysis, particularly by Killing Woods and the Business Post, you know, showing that some of these institutional investors, they much rather leave uh, apartment blocks completely empty than, you know, drop the, the notional market rent they have. Um, so, so that kind of lowering of rents, in fact, that should be happening naturally now because of the, the change circumstances we're in, isn't, isn't happening or certainly isn't happening to the degree that it should. Uh, so they're, they're doing damage on, on that. And that, that's, that in itself is, is, I mean, owning, given the housing situation we're in, given the level of homelessness, to own, uh, you know, brand new apartment blocks in Dublin City and, you know, ethically just to leave those empty is, is completely un, unethical. Um, it, it, that has consequences in terms of uh, homelessness. And most people who've become, who've lost their home, who end up in emergency accommodation, their last stable place where they lived was in the private rent sector and it is affordability issues that pushes people out it's just even the, the stress that everyone else has put put under in terms of trying to achieve those sorts of you know meet those sorts of rents so it's it's that entire and, and as i said look there of course there's room for 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 renting absolutely and there's you know in terms of renting you're going to have different owners you know individual and institutional and all that that the problem here is it's been this model that's totally dominating uh, it's these kind of funds dominating it uh, and almost kind of to hell with everything else and even the 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 you know the changes that they've pushed through in terms of uh planning standards and we're seeing you know more and more of these you know build rent schemes you're seeing you know apartments without even a small little balcony and whatever you know whatever about pre-covid you know i think you can really value now that you know 
for everyone to have even just a little bit of their own outdoor space, like what's what's wrong with that? Like, and why mm. why couldn't that? Why could such a small thing like that? Why why can't we be insisting uh, on that? Like, you know, I think that's the most frustrating thing there because you keep ha- having this argument that it's all about just supply, supply, supply is the buzzword. But actually, when the supply is coming to fruition it's being held back or it's a really bad standard so the kind of the tech bro lads going we just need to keep building is just feels like they're being they're gaslighting essentially although there's huge dereliction issue as well beyond like you know hoarding of empty new apartments but also the dereliction issue yeah and and there's a we do have a situation where a lot of this is monopolised and development land is monopolised by a few people. A lot of the new apartment schemes are, are owned by a few funds. I, a number of years ago, you know, close, close where I was as a councillor, I criticised the unfinished housing estate in the local newspaper and the developer of the housing estate took great offence at me describing the unfinished estate as unfinished, which it was. So, like, he rang me up, insisted that he wanted to meet me, show, show me everything or whatever around the estate. So I, so I met him. And he explained his entire business model to me uh, over the course of about, you know, half an hour or an hour. And he, you know, pointed at land and said, that land up there, I own that. All those apartments there, I own that. That housing scheme over there, I own that. So this entire area, he owned the lot. And he's explained to me that what he did was, rather than let out all the apartments and houses at once, he made absolutely sure just to put two or three on the market each time because he didn't want rents to, to drop and he controlled the supply and let them out bit by bit by bit so he could maintain the kind of rent levels that he wanted. And look, that made perfect sense for him in terms of his, you know, trying to maximise his returns, but makes awful sense in terms of a wider interest. And so if we design things where we put an awful lot of this in the hands of very, very few people or a few companies or investment funds, it doesn't work out well for people. And you actually see this with, with housing supply a lot now, the, the development land that is needed for new housing controlled by very very few people because the smaller builders just they can't compete in terms of getting development land and then that means you know in terms of your normal uh, kind of competition that would go on between smaller builders larger ones and all the rest and you know you can get more delivery you can get more mix in your schemes you can get different designs and all that they're getting kind of squeezed out of that so that's not not good for for anyone either like mm-hmm. so it, it is this and that has happened more so, uh, I, you know, since the, the kind of Celtic Tiger crash. It's, it's becoming more concentrated. Yeah. I, I mean, it's I'm kind of thinking back to um, that documentary that Ian Kyo made, Who's Buying Ireland, a good few years ago, which basically laid out, uh, you know, what was going to happen in terms of vulture funds and all that kind of stuff swooping in. You mentioned a couple of things there I want to pick up on um, besides that landlord, which is real kind of, get the pike from the thatch uh, kind of talk <laughs> when you kind of say stuff like that. But um, with the rents, are you hearing stories or are aware of anything around jimmying um, rent prices at the moment? Because I've heard of a few um, cases where, you know, you go on DAF now and rent is pretty much ballpark in and around what it was um, before the pandemic. There's obviously the addition of like, you know, every front page of any district in Dublin on Daft is now just like loads of student accommodation. You know, obviously they're freaking out. That's a particular model that there's complete oversupply of um, in parts of this, in all of the city. But with regards to the rent stuff, what I'm hearing is um, the rent will be, let's say you have a one bedroom apartment in uh, 
like Houston South Quarters or no, let's not name a place. Let's in in Dublin too or something, right? And a one bedroom apartment and it's sixteen hundred euro a month or something. That's probably cheap for that area, uh, which is insane. Uh, but when people go to rent it out, what? is actually being told is that they can negotiate a lower rent, but that the estate agents or the people managing the property want this facade of the rent being kept up so that rents aren't tangibly seen to be falling. Yeah, no, uh, certainly anecdotally, I've been heard, hearing quite a good bit about that. So I, I look, I think in, in terms of when COVID hit, uh, and to be fair, you know, a lot of the kind of smaller landlords were, were genuinely cutting different deals for for some of their tenants and like a lot of like shared houses, for example, where there would have been three or four people sharing the rent between them. And then one of them leaves and goes down, down the country or whatever. And then maybe a second person leaves to be fair to a lot of the smaller landlords, they were cutting deals where they weren't, you know, sticking the entire rent on the remaining uh, tenants, which would have been normally the way, you know, cause it's, it's negotiated as a, as a rent for the house, as opposed to a rent per, per room. So I, I think to be fair, a lot of that was kind of happening on a, on a genuine basis, but there's definitely, I'm definitely hearing in terms of institutional landlords and doing exactly what you, you've said. And just, yeah, it's part of that is, is not wanting to see the, you know, the, the market rent fall for the area. Part of that is in terms of their, the way that they kind of value their own assets. They want to be able to say, well, this is the, the rental yield officially, even though it isn't. Part of it potentially will manipulate the limited protections under rent protection zones because the official market rent is still recorded at the, at the advertised rate. Part of it does affect when there's, if the state is going to do a long-term lease with that institution for let's say 20 or 30 homes in that development, the institution can say, well, this is the official market rent level. So we're going to sign up our long-term lease based on the calculation of what the official market rent level is rather than the actual market rent level, which could be significantly lower. So there's an issue with that. And then there's, I've, I've heard from others as well, there is an issue that they feel that some uh, institutions or landlords are using this as a screening method as well to try and deter uh, tenants that may be slightly lower income. Um, right. They, yeah, yeah, and they're using this. Yeah, yeah, which is which is. I mean, that's that's the most um, kind of disturbing uh, part of this potentially. Um, I guess it's you know, a different but, version yeah. of um, of uh, people not being you know, not getting gaffes if they're on uh, rent allowance, what well, was previous rent allowance and HAP, whatever. You know, there's a sense to this. And, you know, as you're saying, like this was happening in Dublin and now that it's, you know, hitting people in the commuter belt area or whatever, now it's a problem. There's a bit of a sense of like, if they come for me in the morning, they will come for you at night about it. That a lot of canaries yeah. in the mine around like lower income people in Dublin dealing with the housing crisis, students, artists, all that kind of stuff saying we can't afford to live here, we can't afford to live here. And it just cascades. I wonder now, is the political impetus to actually, uh, you know, act on this, um, albeit in kind of an ad hoc reactionary way rooted in fear of losing votes, perhaps based in a fear that smaller landlords are getting squeezed out. Yeah, well, I, I, I think certainly the last week what was, was happening was that kind of probably at a political level or a government level, that kind of fear of, oh, this is now affecting, yeah, you know, suburban middle class families or whatever. We can't have that. And like you see this the whole time in Ireland, like you, you see this in, in terms, of, let's say, you know, crime or whatever, that there's this official almost tolerance of not dealing with issues as long as it's only affecting more marginalised 
communities and when it spills over from more marginalized communities in, into other communities, then all of a sudden it's a national scandal that needs to be addressed or whatever. And they repeatedly see this um, in terms of, I suppose, effectively people in society who have more power and more more clout and more political clout and all of that uh, are, are certainly more perceived power and political clout. They, they get there when, when issues affect them, that there's more of a response and you know, there is, unfortunately, there's no, no question about that. I had a look recently at a really good piece of academic research that was done by a retired Garda looking at how Garda resources are deployed. And he was strongly making the case that they're, they're deployed very unfairly in terms of reacting more to issues in, in communities that are better resourced and much less so to, to communities without less resources. And he was, you know, obviously at the, the cold face of this, so I had a good good insight uh, into it. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things, I, I was talking to an estate agent recently enough, and they were saying that they had done an analysis on the different tenancies. They have a fairly you know large uh, amount of tenancies that they manage. They were saying they did an analysis on them, and in terms of issues arising with the tenants or around non-payment or antisocial behaviour or whatever, they were saying their analysis showed there is no difference whatsoever regarding uh, whether people were on HAP, not on HAP, income level. Uh, and they were saying that some of the most difficult situations they've had to manage have been from the, you know, uh, so-called, you know, young professional classes or, or whatever. Now, they were they were saying most, of course, most of the tenants, no problems at all, but they said they've had some really difficult situations to handle from the very types of tenants that, that a lot of the homeowners are, 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 are property owners are, are stereotypically chasing um, and so like there, you know there's definitely issues uh, uh, around that as well yeah some might call it karma let's talk about O'Brien's housing bill for a minute which has been criticised from all quarters um, including within his own party what do you think would be maybe the most worrying parts of that bill? Yeah, well, definitely the, this shared equity scheme is the is the biggest problem. And it, what happened in the UK when that that came in is it effectively well it was used by people actually could already afford to buy a home, but they they were using it to buy a slightly bigger home or a slightly more expensive one. And in, rather than it creating extra supply in the areas where where housing is most in demand, it was used most in more peripheral parts of, of England and Wales where there was the kind of least uh, demand. So it, it's the, the criticism of it is, is effectively that rather than increasing the supply of affordable homes, what you're doing is you're adding in a measure that increases demand kind of further. And there's already a lot of demand, so you don't need to stimulate the demand side uh, more. That's the kind of criticism of it. And that instead of, you know, putting, let's say, 75 million this year into that, what's effectively a subsidy that goes to developers, it would be better to use that to help build affordable homes in a, in a more direct manner. So, for example, Okulon Housing Alliance, they're building on, on small scales now, but up in Dunemer and Lusk and down in Cork and Waterford, previously in Poppentry and Ballymund, they've been building affordable homes. The, the ones in Dunemer, Lusk, go from about 160000 for a two-bed apartment to about two hundred and sixty for a three-bed semi-detached house. And that's the price range they're in. So... The idea being that that's a better way to deliver affordable homes rather than these kind of subsidies that would go to private developers. And you might be seeing so-called affordable homes, but at, you know, 400,000 euro in, in Dublin or if it's an apartment, 500,000 euro. So the, the Okulon model works well because while they used, you know, private builders first and 
and that they some of the risks that a private developer has uh, they're they're not taken on they're not taken on they they're, they've better access to cheaper finance because they're not the private developers are, are riskier models they have to pay out you know higher finance and, and all that so it's some of those areas and then also they, they make good use of you know public land at a, at a more affordable route uh, as well so that's part of the solution on this it feels like the shared equity scheme is like a housing ver- and I, I kind of feel a little bit like this with the help to buy stuff as well because as you say like incentivizing demand is is not the issue you know people don't need in, incentives for that but it feels to me like the shared equity scheme is like a housing version of the bike to work scheme you know you say like you can have 100 euros or whatever it is to buy a bike uh you know to cycle to work and then all of a sudden every single bike is like 450 quid <laughs> you know like it just the price just goes up because the the people controlling the market understand that that is now extra money that's available, but they still want the other money as well. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what happened in the UK. So, for example, like in, in North East England, where a lot of the shared equity scheme was rolled out, the average price of a new built home for a first-time buyer was less than £110,000. For a first-time buyer getting a new built house under the shared equity scheme, the average price was over £180,000. That's the gap. So it's exactly as you say, you, you create this additional pool of money and this additional subsidy and developers kind of go, right, well, what can we, what can we add on here to sell a more expensive uh, house? And, and I mean, the giveaway in that as well is in the, these price caps that have been published. So they're actually above, the price caps are actually above average uh, house prices in most, most parts of the country. So not only is it not an affordable rate, it's actually above the, the average average rate. So that's exactly what will happen. And, and this is the only people who were looking for this, only people who were looking for this was developers. No one else was looking for it. And no one else, apart from the developers and the minister, has been defending this scheme. No one. Why is it like, you talk and spar with and, you know, work alongside, uh, in some respects, the minister for housing? Why is he doing this? <laughs> Like if everybody's saying this is wrong, this is what's going to happen. And it's not just like, you know, Paul Murphy or something um, that, that somebody from Fianna Fáil could then just write off. Like this is the ESRI. This is like respected economists, people who really know their stuff in policy. You know, is it is it kind of like sometimes I feel like it's like talking to a conspiracy theorist or something. It's like you tell them that's clearly not right and then it's like I've I've done my research I know what I'm talking about and you know it, it's just like so illogical why is he why is he doing this yeah I mean I genuinely do, I, I don't know I mean the, one of the things that really gets me on this is is he and and others they keep on quoting this uh, report from the UK done by the National Audit Office in 2019 on the shared equity scheme and it's clear when they're quoting it that they haven't read the report because they're, they're misquoting it and they keep on saying this report shows there's only 1% house price inflation caused by this scheme. And that's not what the report says at all. They're totally misquoting it. There's actually, there's, there's other analysis to show that since this scheme came in the UK, house prices uh, increased over a number of years by 42%. You can't put that all down to this scheme, incidentally. And it's actually quite ha- hard to measure how much this scheme adds into house inflation because there's different reasons for house inflation. So it's not a, a very scientific way. But And you certainly couldn't say, oh, it's only created 1% house price inflation. But that's not what this report says anyway. So I, look, 
I mean, I don't know. It's it's it, it's really important in politics uh, for people to lif- listen to different viewpoints, uh, not just to listen to the viewpoints that you might be most kind of fit well with you or, or whatever. You have to listen to, to contrary ones. Um, but yeah, you absolutely have to try and seek out what's independent advice. And that's exactly like the SRI, Central Bank, Department of Public Expansion Reform. You know, they're, they're fairly middle ground you know, for want of a better, better word, their advice can be a little, you know, it's not left field, it's fairly born, it's fairly safe, it's not a, and, and that's what's strange about it, like, it's, it's, it's yeah, I, I can understand it if they were dismissing other, other voices, but to dismiss all of those, I, I, I just don't understand it, I, I don't understand how they think this could possibly end well, Um maybe maybe in politics people just look to get an idea sometimes and they just they just stick to it and hold to it and and maybe that's what's happening but and it's to be expected uh that there would be you know good debate or, and, and a possible criticism over different new measures but but you can see that like with the affordable housing bill there's three planks to it there's the kind of direct bills that I was talking about the Okula model there's cost rental and there's basically no controversy over that there's pretty much consensus that these are really good good approaches the the one criticism that, that some of us would have is we'd say, look, it's been done on far too small a scale. I mean, to really, really scale those up. But so why you would keep the controversial element that everyone is telling you is going to go wrong and, and not just focus in on, on those two ones. And for like Fine Gael councillors and Dublin City Council unanimously said they didn't think the shared equity scheme was a good idea. You'd be better off putting the 75 million into, you know, cost rental or direct build affordable housing, which is, you know, exactly the same view I would have in it. And like, I probably wouldn't agree with a lot that Fine Gael councillors and Dublin Council would agree with. Like, so that's your, a bit of your dead giveaway, though, actually, in a way, mm-hmm. is when, when people from across the political spectrum and across the different expertise are all kind of saying the same thing. So making it easy for you then at, at that point to know that maybe you're going down the wrong route. Before I ask you what you think the solution is to all of this in one sentence, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I have a, a kind of side question. How you spoke about the UK a lot there. How do the people in Grand Designs manage to make these big, huge houses that would be not a hope of us ever doing in Ireland? Well, no. Evan McLeod's show blows my mind, and every week you're like, How are they managing to do this house for that budget? Because that would not even buy you an apartment in somewhere very far outside the city. So, this is building cost issue that you're highlighting here. Andrea, it's building. Kind of McLeod, it's it's <laughs> but there is this stuff around how, like you know, the builders constantly say, "Oh, but you know, it's just so expensive to build." It's like you set the prices. You set the prices. Yeah, well, for for an answer on grand designs, you're asking the wrong half of my household. <laughs> so uh, I, I can't can't answer that. But yeah, building costs. I mean, that's that's a huge issue, and our, our building costs here are amongst the highest in in Europe. Uh, and that is feeding into in, into the whole thing. And why though? Why? I saw an interesting I'm, thing today that said the difference between developers and builders that builders are actually can get the building done at a better cost rate, whereas developers are there to speculate and to get the build hire the builders and to do all that. So it's the it's that's where I think the answer is. No, it's your question, but there you go. Yeah, but if you look at there's there's a, a breakdown done by the Society of Chartered Surveyors Ireland. They do it around about every year on bill costs, both of, of houses and apartments. 
and they break down where all the costs are. And it's very notable that it's it's about a little bit less than 50% of the costs are the actual building materials and labor. Uh, the other 50% is largely around financing, risk, you know, contingency, marketing, professional fees, architect fees, uh, builder, you know, the, the profit margin. And the funny thing is they work the profit margin in kind of, you know, in a few different places and stuff. So um, that that is certainly, you know, that's, look, that's that's part of it. There, there, there is... Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I don't think there's enough focus actually on on the the building costs and driving it down. But but part of it as well is that like if your model is in trying trying to address affordability, rather than you're looking at the bill cost or trying to do the Oculon model that really drives the the cost of delivery down, and instead you're looking at providing subsidies, it is as Una said earlier that your prices then will tend to go up to meet the you know what you're going to be able to get through the subsidies and and through the the, the other money available. I mean. Nothing in a nothing in a kind of private sector sense ever refuses money. You know, if there's if there's money made available, it will find a way. And the the, the bike to work scheme actually is a really good example of that, isn't it? That you know, you can have that for free, Keen. I expect oh, to hear you. it in the door next thank week. You. <laughs> thank you, but the, um, but it is true, isn't it? I mean, those sorts of bike prices were never seen before that yeah. scheme came in. You know, I think a really good scheme, but actually, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, so, what would you do then? What would you change in this bill? I would drop the shared equity thing, absolutely scrap it, put the 75 million into cost rental and direct build affordable homes. And really, Duck, really, really what we have to do is, is scale up the Oculon housing model uh, rather than like 50 homes here and 50 there. We should be looking at thousands of those. That's kind of where the, the, there's a particular gap in housing affordability. So we need social housing, we need affordable homes, and then you need your, your private sector for you know, for people who are able to afford that, but rather than trying to get the, trying to do the affordability thing through different subsidies that might bring you know bring up people up into the kind of full market price level, and that just inflates prices further. It's it's really to have a different stream of of affordable housing hmm. uh, delivered. I do worry um, with obviously we need to build more houses. I do worry that you know down the line if we build like vast estates and things like that and, and big tower blocks, even though there's never been, uh, I mean, there's plenty of planning permission for, you know, really tall towers in Dublin. They didn't even get built during the Celtic Tiger. But um, I do worry sometimes like if we are going to, and I know there's hoo-ha happening in, in Dunleary about this with uh, the, the the planners there saying that too much land is being zoned for housing. But I do worry that we may overbuild um, as a reaction and like it's not like the Irish population has exploded in the past five years and with you know office culture completely changing there you know and I, I don't think there's going to be you know a mass drive to rural Ireland uh, but I think it, there will be some of that um, and when you look at certain parts of the country like I think in Donegal nearly one in three ho- uh, houses there is, is vacant and we have a massive vacancy issue. We built houses in the wrong place, um, places uh, during the Celtic Tiger because it was just like monopoly land throwing out houses across the landscape and seeing where they landed with very poor infrastructure and amenities and stuff like that. Like sometimes I wonder, yes, there is demand obviously, but like if we're building like 200,000 houses or something in the next, you know, 
eight years, like that seems like an awful lot. Like, do we risk overbuilding? And, you know, there's environmental consequences and biodiversity consequences to that too. Yeah, I mean, the certainly there is, you know, even if, if our population isn't growing so fast, one of the changes that's happening is we do, we're having smaller and smaller households. Yeah. You know? So even now, you know, there are, there are more individuals, for example, that, you know, want to have somewhere to, to live, maybe kind of long-term and maybe on their own. And like, you know, don't want to be kind of, you know, you, you know, you can house share or whatever, but you don't necessarily want to house share for your whole life or, or, or whatever, you know? Um, so, so like that is part of it, but it's a very important point you make about it's not just about building more and more homes. It's about building communities. And when I talk about doing the kind of a cool-on model on scale, I don't mean that you, rather than having a development of 50 homes, all of a sudden you start having developments of 1,000 homes. But it's and, – and communities can work really, really well, actually, if they're, if they're relatively small, if people have that kind of communal ownership over it. Once you go into building schemes that are, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, you can lose a lot of that. And even in terms, you know, doing the kind of cleanups or managing the area or feeling safe for your kids to be out or all that sort of stuff that can kind of break down if you start doing these schemes that are, are far too large so it's really important in planning that it's it's not very large schemes that are done sense of identity all of that you know smaller ones really really work there's a, there's all that kind of research done over the years not just to do with housing i mean done you know it's to do with employment or it's even how armies are built and all the rest that you can you can build a kind of community up to about 150 people that people kind of know each other, can kind of keep up to date with what another person is doing or, or whatever. And after you start going beyond those scales, it begins to to break down. So, like, there's a lot to be said for, you know, as housing is, is, is being built and communities are built, trying to do them as, you know, smaller kind of units and smaller kind of entities. Um, and then, you know, that can be part of a larger, larger new, new community or, or scheme. So... I think there's a real danger because there's there's such a pressure on for housing now that we would end up, if we get the housing supply issue sorted, we'd end up creating a whole set of new problems by just shoving in lots of homes and not thinking about the infrastructure and the, the community and the amenities. And they can make a, like a certainly, you know, I was 10 years as a councillor and you kind of really get to see in that role how important, like how, like a playground can be. Like a playground is not just something that kids burn off all this energy and have lots of fun and it's where the it's where the parents meet each other who may not have known anyone in the community up until that point it's where the grandparents uh, bring their grandkids and meet other people and it's it's a whole kind of small enough piece of infrastructure but the value you get out of it and it, it changes the dynamic from you know everyone kind of all the kids playing in private spaces or in front of tvs or whatever it is to to meeting in that kind of communal space you know for fairly small investments so if, if you get that stuff right at the beginning rather than communities having to like fight for these facilities over 10, 20 years and maybe to have some facilities for young people, you know, communities fight from 10, 20 years by the time they get facilities for young people, they're all kind of grown up. If you can actually put this stuff in place at the start, this is done really well in, in a lot of other uh, European countries and they do it around land as well. So rather than private speculators getting the value from land being rezoned, you know, the state or local authority buys up agricultural land, puts in the amenities, the infrastructure and uses the the value from putting in those amenities and infrastructure to help ensure that the housing that comes in stream is quite affordable rather than some kind of speculator grabbing speculative profit from getting the land rezoned and the infrastructure put in. We, we've Our whole model has just totally flipped the, the wrong way. It seems so groundbreaking to provide amenities for people in a community. 
Groundbreaking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, before yeah, yeah, but it, and it works wonders. Yeah, you know? it's bananas. Uh, but, it's, but it's even if you do good planting in an area when, when housing's built in, like a, good for the environment and biodiversity, but it's good for people just relaxing that they've trees and they've greenery and like all the kind of issues. Mm. It doesn't get rid of criminality or antisocial behaviour, but those small things help. You know, that's yeah. the yeah. Before we let you go, tell us who is going to be the soft down candidate in Dublin basis. Uh, well, uh, we were thinking maybe yourself. Now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to. You didn't say no. You didn't say no. I would second. Can I second that, please? Uh, no, I <laughs> that was a very weak denial. <laughs> who do you, you reckon, though, Keen? Who's in the mix? Uh, well, I, that'll be decided shortly enough, you know, by the, the local members. So there's, there's a good bit of good bit of interest. So it's not too late to get your name in. You know? <laughs> Listen, Kean O'Callan, uh, TD for Dublin Bay um, North, uh, Social Democrats, and also their spokesperson on housing. Thanks so much. It's so nice to talk to you, and uh, always nice to talk to a politician who speaks like a human being and not a robot or press release. And you were one of those, so I appreciate that. Thanks, Una. Thanks, Andrea. Thank That's you. What's getting in the sea this week, Andrea? A very astute political time um, right now. It's very serious. The fact that the cock destroyers are no more. They have parted ways and in a very non-cock destroyer move, it's a man has come between them. <gasps> I know. So men getting in between fierce female friendships can get in the sea. Nice. <laughs> Such a random one, is <laughs> Oh, God. And now it's bananas. So, like, okay. I am a fond, fair, fair weathered friend of uh, St. William Street. I do consider it my home away from home. So it was obviously with excitement when all the pedestrianizations and tests were gone through and blah, blah. And then it was like, okay, big news. The pedestrianization is going to happen. Here's all our announcements. And it came through and it was like, the pedestrianization of St. William Street will be from Exchequer Street to uh, the Brown Thomas exit. And I was like, okay, I know this street. That couldn't be true because it's to help dining. It's for all these reasons. So I had to get out the map. I was like, Exchequer Street is where I think it is. It is five doorways of space that is going to be pedestrianized. That's not pedestrianization. That's just starting a block or something. Um, so the streets are for people where we're literally like it's providing an exit ramp for Brent Hump. So you literally are not getting one bit of the bonus of pedestrianization because you still have a stream of cars. And then in, there was an article in the Irish Times and it was given like the reason that uh, St. William Street will not be pedestrianized is because Brent Thomas are not capable of making it work. Sorry, do they own the street? Do What about all the other businesses on the street? What about the people who travel in? Only 20% of people travel in by car to, to the city centre. I think four out of five businesses want pedestrianisation. Like 90% of people said that they were in favour of this. How are we being cowtowed by one car park for the overall joy of everyone else? It's just absolutely bananas. And then the same thing is happening on Cable Street. They 
uh, there was a big announcement. Oh, we've got a big announcement for the north side today. And it came out and it was like the end of Cable Street. Panty is literally losing her shit. We're like, why is it only down the other end? Like it doesn't provide any bonus for anyone. So myself and Panty have now engaged in a challenge that was put to us uh, by Streets Are For People to see who can get their street pedestrianised first. Ooh, I like this. Juicy. So the self-appointed, what I'm going to consider the queen of St. William Street, (laughs) against the actual queen on Capel Street, uh, are now embracing a challenge to get pedestrianisation for their streets. Oh, I'm into this. That's juicy. Also, the Drury Street one is like, again, the Drury Street car park have to prioritise that. I mean, essentially, Dublin City Council are confusing extending footpaths with pedestrianisation. And also, Dublin City Council are, are confusing their role of providing a city for us all to live with in to the demands of car parks. That is bananas. It's bananas. And now it's time for our fave bits. What are your fave bits this week, Andrea? They're very clubbing focused. And do you know why? Because the energy is changing, baby. The energy is changing. Uh, First up is the fact that clubbing is officially culture in Berlin. Uh, There was a case taken uh, to make clubbing institutions be considered cultural institutions. And it won. So there's a lot of work from people like Cloak Commission and German parties and all that kind of parties in the government sense, not the actual party sense. Um, so yeah, clubbing is now officially culture in Berlin. Um, second on my cl- fave bits is the circus parties that happened in Liverpool at the weekend. Oh my God, the absolute joy dripping from everyone's veins in those videos. It was, it was, it was something else. And uh, the joy dripping from my veins watching it, it just has heightened I know I never mentioned clubbing really. Um, <laughs> so it really has heightened my anticipation for when we can get back to it. And it's just so great to see these things happening and trialing so that people who are brave and have the capacity to do it are leading the way so that we can follow and get places back open again. And um, speaking of opening, Trap Hop is opening on Tuesday. I've never been so happy in my whole life um, to have a business back. So that is such stunning news. Uh, other news, if this goes out on the day we've recorded, which is Friday, uh, um, Clubbing is Culture, the documentary we made, um, is on in the VNA tonight and you can buy, you don't buy, you get a free ticket, register and you can watch it. It's at half seven. So if you're listening in time, do tune in and watch that. Uh, it's part of a bigger program. Animatronic is playing, blah, blah, blah. VNA, art, culture, clubbing, bam. And finally, uh, to celebrate the launch of the 8th in the UK, which is on the 25th of May. Um, there's which a- is the documentary which you feature in? It sure is. You're in it as well. Uh, And there's going to be a conversation with Annie Mac on the 18th of May to celebrate its release. So if you are interested in hearing a a tete-a-tete there, you can register through the 8th. Go to their socials or their website to register for that. Fab. My fave bits, uh, the International Literature Festival Dublin has a bunch of self-guided walks um, 
in Dublin City, obviously. Uh, and that's a vibe if you're looking for a kind of live art uh, that is safe and um, available to you and uh, free. You can do these little self-guided walks. You just like go to the website, ilfdublin.com, click on the program strand Boundless and you'll see all the deets there and that's a vibe. My other fave bit is, so obviously a lot of pubs um, are doing takeaway pints. Uh, Obviously there is a dearth of public toilets in everywhere. Uh, So my fave bit is pubs that let you use their toilets when you're buying a pint or maybe if you're not, maybe you're just whatever, walking by. Big up all of the businesses who are safely letting people um, use toilets. It's a blessing. Even though it shouldn't have to fall to them. Exactly. Now it's time for Book of the Week. Book of the Week. Okay, my book of the week this week um, is a very, very slim book. It's one of the Penguin Modern um, modern Classics things that they put out. And it's Kathy Acker's uh, piece called New York City in 1979. Um, I love Kathy Acker. Do you know Kathy Acker? No. She is a kind of badass uh, writer from New York um, who sadly passed away. She's only 50 when she died. And she's very much in the vein of like Burroughs and people like that. Chris Krauss, uh, who wrote uh, I Love Dick, has a very fun and interesting um, biography of her. I and did she, not get that book. I know everyone loves it. I literally was like, I just do not get this book. But that's I, a side step. That's that a side step. I mean, I, I love that book. Um, I've read it a few times and I have a completely different read of it every time I read it. First time I read it, I was like, oh my God, this is so depressing. And then the second time I read it, I was like, oh, this is just absolutely hilarious. Uh, but a side note, I love Dick. But anyway, um, so this this is a really short book, New York City in 1979. It opens with a scene of kind of overheard uh, conversations uh, between sex workers in a jail and it just goes into loads of random stuff. Once you, If you know Kathy Acker's stuff, she kind of pinballs all over the place. And uh, one of her novels is called Great Expectations. Like she just didn't give a fuck. And, um, and a writer that is very much, was kind of undervalued at the time and viewed as quite fringe, but is very much kind of come back to be this, this cult figure uh, posthumously. So that is my book of the week, 250. Uh, yeah. yeah, stunning. Um, so this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all our design. This week's tuna chicken roll is a weird one for me. You, it's not my usual like ri- riding a horse disco electronic vibe, but it's an absolute banger. And it is Slumber Party by Ashniko featuring Princess Nokia. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrew Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was... Arling's housing crisis reaches boiling point. Bam. I'm not shy, I'll say it. I've been picturing you naked. I'm all little faded. You look like a fucking painting. Big doe eyes, amazing. She's everything I've been praying. My heart palpitations. She looks like the type to break it. Me and your girlfriend playing dress up in my house. Mm. I gave your girlfriend cunnilingus. 
I'm the Nelly in the party with some rocks for ears. I'm a slave for you, baby, Miss Britney Spears. I'm a clover, she a Taurus, bringing on the cheers. And I'm sexy like Christina when I dip below. Not an H-Town girl, but I rodeo. Yip, yippee, yippee, Kaye, welcome to the show. It's an all-girl party, clothing optional. Me and your girlfriend playing dress up in my Oh, 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 oh,